being here today. Just wanted to give you a quick update on my health. Um, some of you have been asking. Um, I, have, I was diagnosed with vestibular neuritis. Some of you know, some of you don't. I was hospitalized a week and a half ago on November 2nd, early in the morning. And uh, I basically lost all strength in my body and had vertigo symptoms. Uh, basically, it felt like somebody threw me out of a plane um, and I was pummeling to the earth and uh, very, very nauseous, uh, very, very dizzy. I was hospitalized. By the end of the day, they had diagnosed me with vestibular neuritis, which is an inf inflammation of the uh, nerve that connects the inner ear to the brain. Uh, I've been on uh, steroids, not anabolic steroids, unfortunately. <laughs> I've been building muscle, but not that kind of muscle. I've been building table muscle, as my father-in-law used to call it. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, I'm doing much better, but uh, tried to come back to the office a little too quick this last Tuesday. And in the middle of my first appointment, uh, which was very, very stressful because I was meeting with my wife. <laughs> I told you she's my mentor and my tormentor. <laughs> and uh, so uh, with that being said, uh, the vertigo came back on me in the middle of that meeting. And, uh, you know, somebody threw me out of a plane again. Um, but I, I went home after that and uh, stayed home for the rest of the week. So with that being said, I won't be doing any uh, midweek appointments. My doctor has advised me for the next two to three weeks uh, not to do any midweek appointments, just stay in and, and rest and allow until that inflammation goes away uh, because it's triggered by stress and it's triggered by uh, high blood pressure as well. And so, but uh, other than that, I'm, I'm doing good, uh, just uh, a little bit low energy. And uh, also, I've been taking prednisone, and I found that prednisone, one of the, the side effects of prednisone is it kind of hinders you from putting your words together. And so my wife listened to the sermon from last Sunday. She was like, what was wrong with you? Because my words wouldn't come together. What, you know, I could hear it in my head. I could see in my head what I'm trying to say, but I couldn't find the words to put it together. It kept getting jumbled coming out. And I did a wedding yesterday, and she said the same thing after the wedding. What is your problem? Are you, what are you on? And I'm like, prednisone. That's not... <laughs> Uh, so bear with me. Good to see you all here today on this Veterans Day. Uh, very, very happy. Anybody in the, in the service or any veterans in the room? Anyone? No? That's because you're all under 21 years old. A room full of millennials. With, with, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. <laughs> I'm just thankful for each and every one of you that's here. <laughs> Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Uh, we are in the middle of, this is the second Sunday of our Open House series. And in our Open House series, uh, we want to kind of take you through our vision and mission and values as a church uh, so that we understand who we are and where we are going. The series is called Open House. Last Sunday, we focused on our vision and our vision statement is God truly among us. God truly among us. And what I set forth in last Sunday's sermon is that I am utterly and completely and totally 100% convinced that nobody in the world needs to have an encounter with the church. But I am utterly and totally and 100% convinced that everyone in the world needs to have an encounter with God. We come to church not because we need church, we come to church because we need God. Church is the place where corporately we gather to seek the face of God. And so last Sunday we talked about that vision God truly among us. And the heart of that vision of God truly among us is that each and every one of us coming into this place would have encounters with God, that we would walk away from here each week saying, I met with God today. And that's stimulated by our desire. I, I wanted to set that vision out so that our desire could be stimulated and our taste could be piqued. Uh, I told you how on my birthday last Saturday, um, uh, uh, some friends of ours took my wife and I out to Quince SF, which is a three-star Michelin restaurant. It was an experience that I've never had before. I've never been to a three-star Michelin restaurant before. And what I discovered the entire night, there were like 14 courses. Every single thing they brought out was something that I could not even pronounce. 
You know how they do at the restaurant where the waiter comes and says, what we have here is a That's what you got there. You know, you didn't understand a word he said, but it, you just put it in your mouth. And when you put in, and every single bite that I put into my mouth, there was this explosion of taste. Every single bite was a discovery of something that I had been longing for my entire life, but had no idea that I was longing for. That's what it's like when you experience the presence of God. When you experience the real presence of God, you experience what you have been longing for for your entire life, but you had no idea that you were longing for. Because all of us are fooled into thinking that we long for many things. We're fooled into thinking that we long for all kinds of stuff. If you were to write down your deepest longings and your desires and your wants, you might write down everything but God. And what we don't realize is that the thing that we long for at the core of our being, every human person, longs deeply for God. And so the vision for Living Hope Christian Center is that it would be a place where individuals come and receive the fulfillment of their deepest longing, God. Like you would come here and you would meet with God. You would experience God. And that is our vision. Today we're going to start looking at our mission statement and we're going to unpack one of our values. Our mission statement is sons and daughters who prophesy. Sons and daughters who prophesy. Now this comes from Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And the scripture says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Now, there's, there's a couple of $50 theological terms that we need to unpack in this verse, but it really says something simple. First of all, what does it mean to prophesy? In the Old Testament, there were prophets that would speak. Uh, and the prophets would speak because God did not speak to everybody individually. He would choose a prophet from amongst the people of Israel. He would speak to that prophet, and that prophet would speak to the people of Israel on behalf of God. So a prophet is simply someone who speaks to one on behalf of another. And so if you have two children and you tell one son, go tell your brother that I said to do the dishes right now, and your brother, that, that older son, runs to the younger son and says, Dad said do the dishes right now. You just made that older son a prophet to his brother. He conveyed a message to his brother. I remember I was teaching youth group one time, and I, I talked about the prophets. And I said, do you know what a prophet is? And one of the kids in the youth group raised his hand. And he goes, yeah, that's when you buy something for a dollar and you sell it for $2. <laughs> Not that kind of a prophet. Well, Joel, the prophet Joel spoke in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, and spoke of a time in which God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And he said, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, meaning everyone, every believer, everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ would become a prophet. Sons and daughters who prophesy. Now, now, now if you went back to ancient Israel and you asked, like, what are, if, let's say if you said there were levels of spirituality, like, What's the highest level you could get to? They'd say, you'd be a prophet. Like the greatest thing you could become is a prophet. A prophet is someone who hears from God. God speaks to you and then you speak to others. Your life is characterized by hearing from God and then speaking to others the things that God, say, God says. To be a prophet means to be one who is intimate with God. So intimate with God that you can hear what he says. So intimate with God that you can see where he's going. So intimate with God that you know what he wants. So intimate with God that you're able to go where he goes, say what he says, and do what he does. It is such a high level of intimacy with God that it's as if God were standing inside of you, speaking through you. If you could be a prophet, like, that would be it. And Joel says, the day is coming when God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh and he's going to make everybody who believes in him a prophet. Like, that's the availability. Now, see, this is the crazy thing because the, the standard idea of church is like, you know, you come to church and do I want to be a member of this church or do I want to be a member of that church? And when we think about church membership, it's all about, you know, okay, what are the requirements of church membership? What's the statement of faith? What are the, the, the services they offer, you know, the spiritual goods and services that they offer? Uh, what's the community like? What's the culture like? What do they got for kids? What do they got for people my age? What do they got on Wednesday nights? What's the Bible study like? What's the pastor like? What's his wife look like? <laughs> you, know what I mean? like you know what I mean? Like, what are the people like? Do I feel comfortable there? Do they accept dogs there? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's when we think about church, we just kind of think about 
goods and services that we're going to glean from this community and types of connection, we don't actually think about the process of what are they going to do to me there? Like if I, if I thought, if I join this house, if I covenant with this house, what am I going to be a year from now that I'm not today? What's the process going to be? What, what are the outcomes that I can expect in my life that I don't see in my life right now? And Jesus, the thing I love about Jesus is that when he called people to follow him, he told them the outcomes up front, like from the start. He didn't say anything about the requirements. He only told them about the outcomes. Now, I, for, today, for today, I want you to just follow me for a second because... Um, how many cannot stand telemarketers? I think telemarketing should be illegal. I mean, telemarketers drive me crazy. Remember when, remember the, remember when there were landlines, like people actually had home phones? <laughs> you remember that? Remember, you ever had a home phone? Or at least your parents had a home phone, right? You know, when you were six, right? <laughs> right? There was a home, there was a home phone. There was actually, what they actually had was this like big phone that sat on a table in your house. And, like you didn't actually carry it with you. And there was actually a machine on it. There was a machine you had to plug it into. That was the answering machine. Do you know what ruined the landline industry? Telemarketers. Because it got to the point where nine out of every 10 calls you received were telemarketers trying to sell you some good or service that you did not ask for. Un like, how should you be able to call my house without me giving you permission to call my house? Like, how does that work? I can't stand telemarketers. We're, well, now telemarketers are taking over the cell phone space. Now, on my cell phone, I get calls from telemarketers trying to sell me stuff I don't need, services I never asked for. Am I the only one or do you get telemarketing calls? Yeah. Right? Doesn't it drive you? Don't you just want to reach through the phone and choke a telemarketer every once in a while? Right? Just makes me so angry, right? Okay. I want us to consider Jesus the telemarketer today. Follow me. Jesus the telemarketer. Okay. Now, we, none of us can stand telemarketers. But can you imagine what it would be like to be a telemarketer? To be a telemarketer... You have to be able to deal with nonstop rejection, vitriol, anger, and hatred every day. You got to do that for eight hours a day, and then you got to go home and feel good about yourself. Like somehow figure out how to live, live your life. You get cussed out all day long, you know, people hanging up in your face. Yeah, right? Like, can you imagine who can handle that much human rejection and still feel good about your life? We need to start a ministry just for telemarketers. Like, we would just have a night where we minister to you because you just come and cry and get it all out. Why? Because when a telemarketer calls, nobody wants to answer. Nobody's interested in what they're offering, right? Even if what they're offering, like, I got a call. Okay, so, so I got a call from uh, the Marriott. And they were like, we're going to give you an all-expense-paid five-night trip to the location of your choice. And I was like, I... I do want that. <laughs> I'm like, like I inside, I can't stand you. I just want to like hang up in your face. I want to cuss you out. But at the same time, you've piqued my interest. So I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> you know, but I said it with an attitude. I'm like, tell me more. Well, let's see if I really want this. And at the end, I just couldn't do it. I listened to their whole spiel. All I had to do was sit in a 90 minute presentation about their timeshare thing. I didn't have to sign up for the timeshare. I just got to go to the 90-minute presentation, and I get five nights at a luxury resort for like 100 bucks or something like that. And it just it sounded so great, but at the end of the day, I couldn't, I couldn't pull the trigger because it's a telemarketer. <laughs> and I'm just, I just cannot submit to a telemarketer, even if what they're offering me is free. Even if he personally paid for it, I wouldn't take it out of principle. You know, Jesus in our culture is treated like a telemarketer. Just walk up to anybody on the street and mention Jesus and see what you get out of my face. Even in the church, Jesus is treated like a telemarketer. Because nobody wants what he's offering. Nobody wants to hear what he has to say. Ain't nobody got time to listen to his spiel. 
And definitely nobody is willing to buy his product. This is the key. A telemarketer cold calls, makes cold calls, and tries to get people to make a commitment to buy their product. Jesus, walking down the Sea of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 4, he makes four consecutive cold calls. Actually two. But there's two guys that he cold calls in each of these cold calls. And this is what's crazy. This is what I want us to see today. And it works. However, he's not selling a product or service that's temporary. He's asking these guys for lifelong commitments. To follow him with their entire lives. And to abandon anything that would hinder them from answering that call. I'm going to read this passage of scripture. Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. So Jesus, he's walking down the Sea of Galilee. He sees two guys out in a boat. He goes, hey, hey, you two guys, come and follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. Translation, you're no longer fishers of fish. And now I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come follow me. And, and now you got to understand in first century Judaism, when somebody said, follow me, it didn't mean like, come hang out. Let's just come kick it. You know, hey, just come kick it with me. Just come hang out with me, you know, just come kick it, you know. Let's just kick it at the crib, you know, talk about. <laughs> Let's just come party. Just come hang. Let's just come chill, you know. No Netflix and chill. It was not about that. When Jesus said, come and follow me, if somebody said to you, come and follow me in first century Judaism, what they meant was, hey, abandon your entire life and follow me. Commit yourself to me for the rest of your life. Become my disciple. What a disciple meant, it was a very clear call to discipleship. And what a disciple was, was someone who patterned their entire life after their rabbi, after their teacher. Jesus was literally saying, hey guys, hey guys stop what you're doing. Come follow me. Never go back to that stuff. Just follow me. Pattern your life after me for the rest of your life. Now this is what's crazy. Now somebody who, now they had never met Jesus before. Jesus was not a famous rabbi of, their, of his time, at the time. This, these were four cold calls. Here's what's crazy. All four of those guys were like, I'm in. Yeah. Now, the question that sticks out in my mind is what empowered these guys to say yes? Like, what empowered these guys to say, you know what, that sounds like a good deal to me. And they did it in a moment. Notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, I, I got something for you to pray about. You guys, just pray about, you know, I mean, I know you've, you're, because they're in the boat with their fathers, which means they were pattering their lives after their fathers. Like they were expected to take over the family business. And Jesus completely disrupts, and he doesn't even address their fathers. If I'm their dad, I'm like, hey, <laughs> you want to talk to my kids? Talk to me. These guys were teenagers. And he goes, abandon your father, abandon the family business, and do it right now. And come follow me right now. He doesn't say, just think about it for about three, four months. And then, you know, maybe one day when you're ready, make a decision. I'll be here waiting. You just let me know. No, 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 no. He said, come follow me right now, and I'll see you later. And he turned and walked off. And those guys jumped out of the boat and said, see you later, pops. I'm out. And they followed. And here's what's even crazier than the fact that they said yes initially. They not only said a yes initially, but 12, 11 out of the 12 of them lived that out until death. Like for the rest of their lives, like they were put to death. Like almost all of them were somehow murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And at any time they could have just said, hey man, I want to go back to my dad. I don't believe in this dude anymore. They, they, could, they had an out at any time and they wouldn't take it. Like, what empowered these guys to say yes so quickly and so fully? 
Jesus says, here's what you're committing yourself to me. Here's what you're committing yourself to. If you come and follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. If you come and follow me, I'm going to put you through a process. And at the end of that process, you're going to become something that you're not right now. You're going to be fishers of men. How could they say yes to that? Well, we started talking about the first reason for that yesterday. Sorry, last Sunday. Last Sunday when I talked about what it's like to actually encounter Jesus. There's nothing that prepares you for an encounter with Jesus but an encounter with Jesus. There's nothing that can explain to you what it's like to meet Jesus except meeting Jesus yourself. The first answer to that question is that it was Jesus himself who issued the call. Like, if you, I mean, if any other person were to come up to you on the street and say, hey, I got an idea for you. What do you do for a living? Yeah. You're an accountant? Quit that. Come follow me. And I'll make you a, an accountant of men. <laughs> You'd have been like, okay, I'll tell you what. Here's what I'm going to do. Screw you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> get out of my face. <laughs> you know? But if Jesus himself were to walk into your office and say, come follow me and I'll make you an accountant of men. I guarantee you the fact that Jesus himself is the one who offers the invitation changes everything. Because nothing prepares you for a meeting with Jesus himself other than a meeting with Jesus himself. I remember when I was young and God called me to the ministry when I was 11 years old and I, I, I went to school and that we were having a, and when I was in the sixth grade, we were having this um, um, career fest and this, this career counselor was there and he was talking to the kids about possible career paths that you can take. And he asked, do any of you know what you want to be when you grow up? And I raised my hand in front of everybody. I don't know why it didn't dawn on me that, that, that I might get made fun of for saying this. To, to me, it was like, I, I know. He said, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And all the kids fell out laughing like it was the funniest thing they had ever heard before in their life. Right? I mean, they, and I was like, what's so funny about that? I don't get it. What's, the, what's, what's funny? I, I couldn't play basketball on the playground anymore. I went out to the ba basketball court at, at lunchtime that day. And they're like, no, no, no. I don't want to play with the preacher. He might try to bless the ball. <laughs> you pass the ball, he might preach you a sermon before he shoots the ball. And I, was, I got, man, I got made fun of for years after that. But I remember several years later when I, I, uh, I grew up and went to Bible college and seminary and became a pastor. I ran into one of my old friends from the eighth grade. And uh, we, we ran into each other at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Don't ask me why I was at Kentucky. <laughs> I was there, okay? <laughs> I, I like it. Sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. I know that's very stereotypical, but it's true. Um, and uh, so we sat and we talked and we caught up. But as we le when I left, I was walking down the street. and She came out and she was going up the street. And all of a sudden, she stopped and turned around and screamed, Hey, Benjamin! And I turned around and said, Hey, what's up? She goes, come here. And we ran to each other again. And she goes, did you actually become a pastor? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And she had this look of utter surprise on her face because she thought this little 11-year-old kid said this. But they made fun of me because they didn't think it was actually real. Wow. How at 11 years old are you able to make a decision about the rest of your life and keep that decision? For the rest of your life. Well, there's the first answer to that question is because Jesus is the one who initiates it. Yeah. Like, if it's actually Jesus, it changes everything. But there's something about the structure of the way in which Jesus interacts with you when you do encounter him. One of the things I want to talk about in this message today, what, what I want us to understand is what it's like to have an encounter with Jesus. Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it's like to actually meet Jesus, to actually hear from Jesus, to actually receive a call from Jesus. What's the structure of that? And, and uh, what can you expect? So in Acts chapter 26, Paul is talking to King Agrippa. And King Agrippa gives him the opportunity to share his testimony, how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now you may know that Paul, actually, pa Paulos was his, his uh, Greek name, his Hebrew name was Saul, Shaul, and uh, you find 
um, Paul was actually the most anti-Christian individual that you could ever meet. In Acts chapter 9, the scripture says, he held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. So Stephen was this guy who went into a, a tabernacle, and he, I mean, he went into the, the uh, synagogue, and he started to preach about Jesus, and they got so angry that they drug him outside, and they took stones, big, huge rocks, and they stoned him to death, but they laid their coats down at the feet of this guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And it was said in that day that whoever held the coats was the guy who actually ordered the execution. So Saul, he orders the execution of Stephen. And the scripture said in Acts chapter 9 that he was inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against the, against the church. This guy was anti-Christian. Like, he hated Christians. He hated Christians. You ever known? I mean, you might know some people who, like, don't like Christians. He hated Christians. And then not only did he become a Christian, but he became the greatest apostle in the history of Christians. Right? Like, how did that happen? Well, the short answer is, he met Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus. He's on the way to go catch and kill some more Christians. He's inhaling and exhaling threats and murder against Christians. And suddenly, he meets Christ. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter how you feel about Christians when you meet Christ. And it says that there was a blinding light that was so powerful that it knocked him down off of his, his horse or his donkey, off of the beast, whatever the, the animal it was that he was riding on. And he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, watch this. He's telling the story to King Agrippa here in Acts 26, verse 14. And in this rendering of the story, he gives a piece of information that, he hadn't, that we hadn't seen in Acts chapter 9 where it actually happened. When he tells the story to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 14, he says, The Lord appeared to me on the road to Damascus and spoke to me in the Hebrew language. Which is interesting. Because Saul grew up, he was born in Jerusalem, but raised and educated in Tarsus. The Hebrew language, or in the NIV it says Aramaic, but it's actually the Hebrew language that Saul says. The Hebrew language was the language of his heart. It was the language of his homeland. Like if you wanted to connect with the heart, you know, um, so, my, so my wife is Korean, right? Most of you know that. And uh, we were having a birthday dinner for her sister-in-law a few weeks ago. She just turned 50. And uh, while we're sitting there, my wife and her brother and sister-in-law, they're all speaking Korean, which is par for the course for me. You know, and they're talking Korean, you know. You know. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, her sister-in-law stops and she looks at me and she goes, Benjamin, do you feel left out when we speak Korean? And I said, you know, if you would have asked me that question 18 years ago when Sonny and I first got married... That would have been a good time to ask that question, because the answer back then was yes. <laughs> but it's been 18 years. I'm used to it now. It's like, it's par for the course, you know? She's like, it just dawned on me that every Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday, family gathering, like you're the only one in the entire house who has no clue what's going on. Because I'll be over there, and they'll be watching Korean videos, all in no subtitles, talking to one another in Korean. I'm just like, by myself, <laughs> you know? By myself outside, I guess. I'm like Donkey and Shrek, you know. <laughs> I'm all alone. <laughs> no. But, you know, at first it was hard. It was so hard at first. I felt so left out at first. But then after a while, it dawned on me. It took maybe a couple of years. I was so young when we got married. I was very immature. But it took me a couple of years to realize Korean is the language of their heart. Like, this is their, this is who they are. This is their culture. Like, I mean, they can understand English, but if you really want to connect to their heart, you talk to them in Korean. That's why whenever me and my wife get in an argument, she always brings out a Korean saying, and she'll say it in Korean, you know? She's like, there's a Korean saying that says, if you spit into the air, it'll come down and hit you in the face. I'm like, and then she'll say, you know? And she'll say, you know, I'm like, I don't even understand that in English. <laughs> I, don't know. I got no interpretation of what that means, even in, even in the English language. But it's like, it's the language of the heart. And 
And her sister-in-law said, you know what? We're going to try not to speak Korean around you. I'm like, it's too late for all that. It's been 18 years. I was like, but it doesn't bother me anymore anyway. Why? Because just because Sonny married an American guy, the whole family should stop speaking Korean whenever I'm, I'm around. It's like, that's not fair to you guys. I, wouldn't, I would never ask you to do that. It's the language of your heart. Like, this is how you talk when you're together. This is how you talk when you're comfortable. This is how you talk when you're connecting deeply with one another's heart. If you could imagine, if God, when God comes to one of the members of that family, he speaks the Korean language. Like, he's not speaking English. He's speaking the Korean, like he's speaking the language of the heart. When God, when Jesus came to Paul, he spoke to him in Hebrew, the language of the heart. Do you know that you have a language of your heart? Like in the deepest part of your heart, that, that part of you where, where you are desperate to be known, that part of you that only you know, that, that, you're, that, that you're the only one. And every once in a while, somebody speaks the language of your heart and connects with you in a deep way. Do you realize that God is actually more intimate with you than you are with yourself? Do you realize that he actually knows you better than you know yourself? That he knows your thought of far off, thoughts that you haven't even thought before. He knows desires that are so deep in you that you don't even know to desire them. Do you realize that the language of your heart is a language you can't even speak to yourself? It's only a language that God can speak to you? The number one reason why anybody responds to Jesus, not just to become an apostle or to become, or to become a Christian at all. Like, do you realize that if you heard the call of Jesus Christ and responded to it and invited Jesus to come into your life, that's a miracle. Yeah. And that's a crazy miracle. It's a miracle. I'll never forget, you know, what, what I've seen miracles, but the greatest miracles that I've ever seen is salvation. I'll never forget, I got a call. There was a young lady in our congregation whose, whose mother was she, was, she was half Japanese and half black. Her father was black. Her mother was Japanese. And um, her mother was dying. I, I did her wedding. Her and her uh, husband got married. And she called me one day and she said, my mother is dying. She had, they had just found she had a tumor in her stomach the size of a cantaloupe. And uh, they rushed. I mean, she, all of a sudden she, she's playing with her grandchildren. She falls to the floor and she starts screaming in pain. They rush her to emergency. And when they, they, they'd start, they found out she had a tumor in her stomach the size of a cantaloupe. And they said, you've got two weeks to live. And she said, would you visit my mother? She's freaked out. And I went to the hosp hospital to visit her. When I got out to the hospital to see her, she was so scared. She was hiding under the covers. And this is an old Japanese woman. And I came in and I, I said, how are you? And she looked at me just with a terrified look in her face. She said, I'm so scared. And I said, I'm wondering if I can talk to you for a little while. She said, sure. I said, I want to talk to you about God. Do you know anything about God? She says, no, I don't know anything. She had a thick Japanese accent. I said, have you ever been to church before? She said, no. I said, have you ever read the Bible before? She said, no. This woman was a blank slate. She knew nothing. She had no reference. So I sat down next to her bed and I started telling her the story. And I started with Abraham and I told about how God had chosen him out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, get up out of your father's house and go to the place I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And Abraham obeyed, even though he didn't know where he was going. And I talked about his life in the promised land, how he lived there as a stranger and as a foreigner and as an alien. And, and I told him about Isaac and, and I told her about Jacob and I told her about Jacob's son Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt, and, and how the, the famine came, and Joseph became the prince of Egypt, and, he, and I told him about Moses being born, and, and, and the exodus, how God brought them out of Egypt, and I just kept telling the story, and, and how they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness, and how they came to Mount Sinai, and God came and sat on the mountain and said, I am Yahweh God, who brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, God am a jealous God. And I told the story of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness and how God brought them into the promised land in the days of Joshua. And I told him about, told her about the judges. And 
and, and about the prophets and, and about the kings and about King David and King Solomon. And then I took her all the way up to the time of Christ and I told her about Christ being born of a virgin woman in, in a manger and how the wise men came from the east and they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh and how he grew up and lived a perfect life and, and how the Holy Spirit anointed him at the Jordan River and how he worked miracle signs and wonders. And then I told her about the cross, how he was crucified for the sins of the world. And when I told her about the cross, this look of utter sadness, as I had been telling her the story, all of a sudden she started to sit up higher and higher in the bed and the covers came down lower and lower and I could see that she was captivated. I saw captivation in her eyes. But when I got to the cross, I saw such deep pain and sadness. And she said, why did he have to die? And I looked at her and I said, all of us have done wrong. She said, that's true. And I said, all of us deserve punishment because of the wrong that we've done. And she said, that's true. I said, God the Father took all of our wrong and laid it on his son on the cross. And he bore the punishment for our wrong. And she said, that makes sense. And I thought to myself, no, it doesn't. <laughs> There's a particular context in which that makes sense. And that context is if Jesus himself is standing in the room. Because as I told that story, I felt the atmosphere change in that room. And Jesus himself came and stood in that room. And I knew his presence. And I knew in his presence there's an ability to grasp things that you can't grasp outside of his presence. In his presence, things make sense that don't make sense outside of his presence. In his presence, you can believe things that you can't believe outside of his presence. And when I told her, which is just the simple gospel message, I saw this joy come on her face. And then when I told her about the resurrection of Jesus, how on the third day he arose again from the grave, you should have seen the joy explode from her face. And she said, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I said, just pray this prayer with me right now. And I took her hands and I led her in the sinner's prayer. And I, I said, repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you. And she said every word of the prayer. And when I got to the end of the prayer and said, amen, she wouldn't say amen. She was squeezing my hands so tight. And she was going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And tears were streaming down her face. And then she started saying, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And I thought she's having a real encounter with Jesus. This woman who has never met him before, who has never seen him before. He has just walked up beside her bed like he walked up to the men in the Sea of Galilee, and in one encounter, in one moment, she meets him personally, and she surrenders her life to him. Do you know what she did? She, she lived another week and a half, and every day of that week and a half, she preached to her family members, you must know Jesus. You must receive Jesus. He's the Son of God. He died for our sins. He arose again from the dead, and he's real. And his, her, her daughter came in and said, Mom, how do you know all of this? She said, because yesterday I saw him. He stood in my room here. When Pastor Benjamin prayed for me, I saw him, and he stood in my room, and he's so beautiful. He's more beautiful than anything you could ever believe. How could someone go from knowing zero about Jesus to being a preacher of Jesus in one hour, it's because she met him personally. And when she met him, he spoke the language of her heart. But the language of her heart was not Japanese. In your heart of hearts, the language of your heart is not Chinese or Korean or English or any other human language. But the language of your heart is deep desire. For the type of joy that only comes in the presence of God. Paul said, he spoke to me in the Hebrew language. He spoke to me in the language of my heart. The first of our core values, or the second of our core, the first of our core values is spirit-centric experience, which connects to our vision of God truly among us. That was what last Sunday's sermon was all about. The second of our core values is personally relatable. That is, when our number one priority when people come into the house is that they would have an experience of the Holy Spirit, that they would encounter Jesus Christ, the living presence of Jesus himself. But second, that we present that encounter with Jesus in a way that is personally relatable. We want to speak the language of your heart. He speaks to me in a way 
that only He can speak. He touches me in places that only He can touch. He heals me in ways that only He can heal me. What we find in the presence of God is that the presence of God is not foreign to us at all. But the presence of God is as natural to us as a mother's breast is to a baby. But Paul goes on to explain to King Agrippa. He says, first, he spoke to me in the Hebrew language. But what did he say? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Isn't it interesting that he makes the deepest connection he can make with a human heart, but then uses that connection as a point of contradiction? This is one of the great problems in contemporary Christianity is we either know how to connect or contradict, but not both. We either make a connection and leave it there, or we contradict and leave it there. But Jesus connects and contradicts simultaneously. He connects in a way as, to, as if to say, I love you with an everlasting love and you will never find a love as deep as this love I can give you. And when you connect with that love, he's got you. Like once you experience that love, that's why, you know, people say, just give Jesus a try. No, I wouldn't recommend it. Because if you try the real Jesus, you're hooked for life. I say just jump in with both feet. It's not a try. Like just make a commitment to Jesus himself. But once he makes that connection with my heart, the very next thing he does is contradicts my heart. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't simply say, Saul, Saul, I love you with an everlasting love and this is the love that you've always wanted for. He says, Saul, Saul, and in calling his name, there's this articulation of that deep love of Jesus but the very next thing that he says is the way you've been living your life is wrong. The way you've been thinking is wrong. The decision-making process in your life is wrong. This is the thing that's the greatest scandal of the gospel is nobody wants Jesus to tell them what to do with their life. It's implicit in the call when Jesus says, come and follow me. He means stop following what you're following. When he says, I'll make you fishers of men, he means you're no longer going to be a fisher of fish. You, what we don't realize is that coming to Jesus is not just about what we do from 11 to 12 a.m. on Sunday mornings. But it's about committing ourselves to a radical process of transformation where Jesus says, if you come and follow me, I'm going to make you into something that you are not today. It's a process. I'm going to deepen you. But first... There's some stuff that I got to break off of your life. And isn't it interesting that the first thing, I mean, literally the first day, this is the most devastating blow. You're no longer fishermen. Now you're fishers of men. <clears throat> You've been raised your whole life to think you're going to take over the family business. No more. It's done. You're following me now. It's over. The first thing he does, one of the main reasons why people make decisions, especially in America. In America, people make decisions for Jesus all the time with the lifting of a hand and saying a prayer. And more than 90% of them don't live that commitment to Jesus out for more than a day. It's over at the end of the service. We go back to the very thing. One of the primary reasons why is because there's no contradiction. We have not realized that some stuff in my life has to be over. That the moment I say yes to Jesus, i got to stop saying yes to other things. When Jesus met the woman at the, at the well, he says to her, give me something to drink. And she says, how is it you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for something to drink? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who asked you for a drink, you'd ask him and he'd give you living water that you wouldn't drink and never thirst again. And she says, sir, the well is deep and you have nothing to draw with. Are you greater than our father Isaac who dug this well and drank with it and his sons? And Jesus says, anyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst again. What's he promising her? He's promising her satisfaction of her soul. I'm telling you, there's nothing in this world that can grant you the satisfaction of your soul except the living presence of Jesus himself. He says, I've got water for you. And if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. It will actually satisfy your soul in the deepest place. And the woman says, give me this water so that I don't have to come to this well anymore. 
And Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. So you're right when you say you have no husband. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, why does Jesus say, go get your husband? At the very place where this woman says, give me the drink. I'm ready to drink. I want some of the Jesus stuff. I'm, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. And Jesus, instead of saying, here you go, which is what I would have done, the woman says, give me some of this Jesus. I would have said, bow your head and repeat after me. But Jesus says, go get your husband. I have no husband. You've had five husbands. Translation, the place in which she was seeking fulfillment in life was in, in a husband. She thought, all I need is a husband. And she got a husband, and he kicked her out. She thought, I know what I need, another husband. She got another husband, and he kicked her out. She thought, you know what? This time I'm going to do it right. I'm going to give me a husband. She got a third husband. He kicked her out. She goes, you know what? What I actually need right now is a husband. She got a fourth husband. He kicked her out. And she says, you know what? I think I need to try this one more time. She got a fifth husband. He kicked her out. The last guy wouldn't even give her his name. He would only give her his bed. Jesus says, before you drink from the water that I give, you got to stop drinking from the water that you've been drinking from. you got to stop drinking from this broken cistern. This is what, Jeremiah 2, 23 or something like that? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the stream of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. You can't drink from the, the, the fountain of Jesus and from the fountain of the world at the same time. You cannot live by your own power and by God's power at the same time. Jesus says, if you want to drink from the water I give, you've got to forsake the water that you've been devoted to all of your life. There was a contradiction. These Individuals who were able and willing to embrace the contradiction. To get over that hump. That's all it really takes is to get over that hump. For many of us, it takes us a long time to get over that hump. Many of us, we wrestle against that call to follow Jesus with everything for a long time. But I say to you today, I, I, I'm preaching this message today because I want you to understand our intention. And our intention is not simply to have good church members here. Our intention is not simply to increase our membership, more butts in the seats and dollars in the plate. That's not what it's about. Our intention is not just to have better music and to have more people signed up to serve and a better coffee bar. That's not our intention. We're going to do all of those things. Don't get me wrong, but that's not our intention. If you hang around here, Jesus says, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. You're going to be the ones to offer the call the next time. Sons and daughters who prophesy, that's our mission. That is our mission. If you hang around long enough, we're going to make profits out of you. If you hang around long enough, if you commit yourself to the process, you're going to prophesy. What does that mean? The goal is to bring you to such a place of spiritual maturity and spiritual depth and, spir and, 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 and spiritual intimacy with God that it's as if God is standing inside of you, making his appeal through you. And it's not about like a form where you stand, thus says the Lord. It's not, it's not about that. It's about coming to a place of intimacy with God where God speaking through you is as natural as you speaking yourself. Where you don't even realize that God has already begun to take over and God has already begun to speak through you. But you got to commit to the process. you got to make a decision that I want this. You got to make a decision that I want more than Sunday morning Christianity, that I want more than religion, that I want more than playing church. You got to make a decision that I actually want this. I want to go so deep in God that I hear him speak clearly. I want to go so deep in God that God is able to speak through me. I want to live my life so God can use me anytime, anywhere. It's simply a decision. But you got to commit yourself to the process. If I could have somebody come and begin to play the keyboard. I want us to pray together this morning if we would bow our heads. I believe the Lord is here. And I believe the Lord is pleased to move among us. And I believe the Lord is calling. I was 11 years old when he called me. When he set his hand upon my life. When he visited me, I'll never forget the day. I'll never forget the night. And he said to me, 
I have called you and set you apart to preach my gospel to the ends of the earth. I want you to know today that the call of God is not just about becoming a preacher, becoming a teacher. And I don't want you to worry about that. Maybe I'm going to have to go into the ministry. What I find is anytime God starts to move on somebody's life, we tend to be afraid that maybe I'm going to have to go into the ministry. Maybe I'm going to have to be a pastor. Don't worry about that. Number one, if, if you do become a pastor, that's the greatest thing. That's the greatest profession ever. I just rebuke this whole lie in our generation. It's the worst thing that God could ever do to you is try to make you a pastor. But anyway, don't worry about that because that's... But God's desire for you, God's plan for you is to take you to such a place of depth in Him that you live a life of utter sensitivity to His presence. Utter sensitivity to His Spirit. Utter sensitivity to His power. Where He's able to speak to you. He comes to satisfy the deepest longing of your heart. The heart is restless till it finds its rest in Him. But you've got to make a decision that you want it. That's all you got to do. You've got to make a decision that you want it. The key to all of this is determining your desires. You have the power to determine your desires. You have the power to simply say, God, yes, I want this. And the key to understanding the depth of your desires is that your desires are programmed through repetition. If you are passive about your desires and just let them happen to you, you're going to live in the realm of pleasure. Surface level desires. The deeper desires are governed by your choice. I'm simply inviting you to make a choice today. God, I want to go deeper. I want to be a part of that generation of sons and daughters who prophesy. I want you to use my life for your glory. I want to know the real Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would touch every heart and every mind and that you would take these words that I've spoken today as feebly as as they've come and apply them to hearts in a way that's powerful. I trust you and I give you the praise and I give you the honor and I give you the glory in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit I pray. Amen. Amen. If anybody needs special prayer, I would love to pray with you today and we have leaders here that are ready to pray with you as well. If you need special prayer.